This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. By leveraging their years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. You can learn more about Developer Town at developertown.com slash powderkeg. Again, that's developertown.com slash powderkeg. Developer Town, start something. At BlackBerry, I contracted a company to produce some videos which were essentially product walkthroughs for a really complicated product. But these videos actually decrease the number of support tickets and also increase the conversion rate to buy the product substantially. And the videos were abysmal. And I remember thinking I could probably make these videos on the weekend in the basement, do four or five projects like this a year and live happily ever after. That's Michael Litt, the co-founder and CEO of Vidyard, which is a software that helps companies use video more effectively across their businesses. They've been helping companies optimize their video marketing since 2011. They've raised more than $60 million in capital and are growing like crazy from Waterloo, Ontario in Canada. In this conversation with Michael, you're gonna learn about why Michael and his co-founder turned down 1.2 million of guaranteed investment for a $20,000 check. It's an interesting story, I think you're gonna like it. Uh, and why Michael moved away from Canada to Silicon Valley, but then also why he moved back to grow the company from Waterloo. We're also going to talk about how Michael and his team have honed their startup pitch as they've raised capital, grown their client list, and their team. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and you're listening to episode 34 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, a show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators who are building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. I met with today's guest in San Francisco while we were both attending Dreamforce, which of course is Salesforce's big user conference. So we recorded this interview a while ago, but the advice that Michael shares here in this conversation are truly evergreen, meaning the strategies will always work. They're always going to serve you as a founder or a leader in your field. I love the energy and the wisdom he was generous enough to share with us, and I'm really excited to share it with you. So here's Michael Litt. Well, we are sitting here at Dreamforce. Uh, you just had a, an awesome talk that you gave here on partnerships. Michael, I really love the story of Vidyard. Uh, I've had a chance to do copious amounts of research over the last few hours about you, <laughs> and uh, I'm excited to be here sitting on some blue beanbag chairs with you. Me too. It's a bit of an uncomfortable position. I, this is one time I wish we had video. People could see this. How awkward we look. Yeah. Well, we might have to take a selfie <laughs> that we can just like include in the uh, yeah. in the show notes because this is uh, this is pretty awesome. It's all good. Uh, we are in the bluest green room I have ever been in. But, uh, you know, what do you, what do you expect to dream for us? Yep, you got it. Well, Michael, I, I love your story because you're not actually based here in San Francisco. You're not a, a Valley, Valley kid, although you did go through Y Combinator. Yes. Take me back to the initial idea or concept uh, before you even applied to Y Combinator, because I'm guessing you didn't create the idea just to apply to Y Combinator. I, I'm guessing there was a, another spark or insight that was the kernel of what is now Vidyard. Yeah, I, um, it's a great question. I, I worked uh, through undergrad, University of Waterloo's co-op program, and so you do four months of school, four months of work until you graduate. And through that, you kind of learn what you do and don't like in the world and, and where you do and, and don't want to work. And you also kind of get exposed to problems that businesses have that you start to think about solutions to. So Again, highly recommend you know people in undergraduate programs, college programs, et cetera, to get as much work experience during that time as possible because what we ended up doing was seeing this gap in essentially animated video production for businesses 
And we decided to solve that gap by taking our last co-op terms off. So we're still students, um, you know, we're living off of a ramen, um, don't have huge budgetary needs for our personal lives, and could essentially bootstrap a company to success as quickly as possible. So my co-founder Devin and I started a, a video production company called Redwoods Media, literally out of my, my essentially my dorm room. Why start a company? Was it yeah. to, to pay for college? Was it? Uh... Um, so this was getting towards the end of college. I'd had a few entrepreneurial endeavors up until that point. Tried to start a biodiesel production company, started a blog where I took apart cell phones and, and published the reference designs for free because they were very expensive prior. That grew and ended up selling that asset and, and just kind of had experience building businesses and, and always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Especially especially because I realized how shitty it is to work inside of a big company. Um, you know, there's, there's culture, they can just be really, really crushing. The politics that you see, you know, I had a, an amazing project that I did in one of my work terms that my, my manager submitted on my behalf and took full credit for. And it just, oh, it's that type of stuff that, you know, you start to look at and you say, well, I would like to build a company that isn't like that. I want to build a company that's, that's good to work for, that it's established on the concept of a meritocracy instead of a, a democracy that's super political. And um, at the end of the day, that all pushes towards a startup and a small company that you own, you manage, and, and you manage the culture of. And so that was kind of the, the moment when I realized that was what I wanted to do. And then it just became constantly looking for problems to solve. Yeah. And the best way to find a problem to solve is to immerse yourself in, in these businesses. And so. And was this all in Kitchener in, in Canada? No. So I went to the University of Waterloo and did co-op terms in both Silicon Valley and Waterloo. Okay. But my Silicon Valley co-op terms were at Cypress Semiconductor in San Jose. Oh, wow. It's a bit of a traditional business. And that was towards the end. And that co-op term also aligned with the cell phone blog project I did. Very cool. Yeah, so we, we started to see this need for, for video and business. And uh, when I was at BlackBerry Research in Motion, which is a big company in Waterloo, obviously the makers of the BlackBerry device, which this new generation of startup founders barely even knows existed, I feel. <laughs> right. What's a BlackBerry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. You don't see too many out here. You see a lot in Waterloo, actually, still. Oh, really? Yeah. They're still you, kicking, you man. It's still brand, a yeah. $6 billion company, which is respectable, but well, it's far so cry from 80. And so was Waterloo very entrepreneurial? Obviously, Silicon oh, yeah. Valley is very entrepreneurial, but um, you know, I, I hate being the ugly American that doesn't know the, the, the culture uh, no. in Waterloo. But um, you know, absolutely. It's super entrepreneurial. I think there's about a thousand active companies in the Waterloo region. That's awesome. Um, the University of Waterloo is, is really a brain trust for those types of businesses. I'm going to fly home after this conference Friday night, Saturday morning. I'm, I'm judging a 1,500-person hackathon at the University of Waterloo. Awesome. The Sam Altman and the YC crew is actually coming to judge as well. So there's a, there's a ton of awesome stuff going on there. And, you know, a big, big reason why is the undergraduate engineering programs are these co-op programs where you work and go to school and so again you get constantly exposed to shitty work experiences and you also get exposed to problems in the workplace that you could actually solve because you're given the tools to do so and you've got the freedom to do so because you can take a co-op term off and actually go work on your project and that's that's exactly what we did and that's how Vidyard was created. Oh that's awesome. Um, so anyway and the, and the university doesn't take any IP in what you build so we were able to get academic credit for building Vidyard in our last year of university, commercialize the technology, go to Y Combinator and build a business all well satisfying the needs of our undergraduate. Do you remember career. the initial pitch that you had at Y Combinator? Yeah, so probably rewind a bit. It's been a long day. I'm pretty spastic all over the place. But at BlackBerry, I contracted a company to produce some videos, which were essentially product walkthroughs for a really complicated product, software product that managed devices. It was, again, really complex, really stupid, really poorly built. But these videos actually decreased the number of support tickets 
and also increase the conversion rate to buy the product substantially. And so sure. it was clear that there was an opportunity there. The video project was $80,000 and the videos were abysmal. And I remember thinking I could probably make these videos on the weekend in the basement of the house I'm living in, do four or five projects like this a year and live happily ever after. So Devin, who's now my, my co-founder, is an engineer raised by accountants, great business acumen, seemed like a good guy to start it up with. So I was working at Cypress Semiconductor here in the Valley. He was finishing an academic term. He flew out to drive back with me. It's like a 2,800 mile drive. That is intense, man. I've, you know, I'd have done it probably, I think three or four times now. Did that road trip um, have a soundtrack? Probably us talking about the world of video marketing, to be honest. Because once you, once just, you talk just about- Just out on video marketing. Once you talk about all the stuff you, you could talk about, you kind of really go inside of yourself and you learn a lot about each other, but you can also think very productively for long periods of time especially while one person's driving, they have no distractions at all about cool things. And, and you know, Redwoods Media, the video production business, was founded on that drive. That's when we decided that we were going to take essentially our last co-op term off to make videos for businesses. And if we could generate $50,000 in revenue in the next six months, which is a pretty audacious goal, yeah. then we would not pursue full-time careers after graduation. And it's so, highly motivating. Yeah, and it's a good line in the sand, right? And we didn't want to work for anybody, and we knew that it was the best possible opportunity because, again, you're, you're sheltered by your ability to loan money for cheap as a student. Your cost of living is low. You don't have a spouse or a significant other. You can essentially survive on, you know, 50 bucks a month if you really want to and you live at home and uh, you don't fall in love with a car and a nice TV and a condo. And what I had seen time and time again was peers graduate, get good jobs at Google or Facebook or whatever, you know, 150K plus jobs, get a condo, a nice TV and a car, and never be able to put themselves in a position to start a company ever again. It's golden handcuffs. Exactly. And uh, that's what we wanted to avoid. So we, interestingly enough, we called that 50K goal Project Christmas, which was to generate $50,000 in sales by Christmas Eve 2010. And on Christmas Eve, literally, Devin closed a deal with AdCommy for like 12 grand, which took us to like 48. So we were from 36 to 48. 36 was sitting on the fence. 48 was, okay, let's do this. Because if you can generate 50 grand in six months, you can probably do 50 the next. Yep. And off of 100K, you know, less cost of goods sold and all that type of stuff, we could, we could survive and build a business. And so we started thinking about what it would be like to build a subscription-based platform that hosted and managed those videos and tracked how people watch those assets because mm -hmm. that viewing data could essentially be connected back to ROI. One thing our customers always asked for was, what is the ROI of this video asset? Um, we're going to give you $12,000. What's the expected return? We didn't really know how to answer them. And we also decided to start selling our videos with a guarantee or a warranty, so to speak, which was if 60% of your audience did not complete the video, we would reproduce it until that number was true. And uh, so we went into our final year of engineering with that as our undergraduate thesis project. And as I mentioned before, got academic credit to essentially build that technology. And then towards the end of the program, applied for YC late on a whim, a uh, tip from my roommate, oh, really? who was Eric Mijikowski, who's now the founder of the Pebble smartwatch, yeah. who went to YC. Yeah, so, I'm rocking one right now. Yep. Yeah, he was my, uh, my roommate during undergrad, applied to YC, got an interview, flew out for the interview. PG liked what we were doing. We had revenue, probably about 100K from the services side at this point into the business. And uh, well, saw that we did, were- Why did he like ahead. what you were doing? When, when you yeah, pitched I, to him and-, and uh, You know, I think in the grand scheme of things, it was that we were building a technology for a problem that we had not only defined, 
but that we saw existed with a number of customers in the market. So we weren't shooting from the hip saying, this is something that we believe the world needs. We could say this is something that we know the world needs. Here's the revenue and the customer list to prove it. And so we came to him with research and a, and a baked idea. Then he looked at the team. It's no secret that YC and PG specifically are very bullish on the Waterloo ecosystem and the engineers it creates. And so, you know, they, they saw what I believe to be a winning combination. And, and PG called us YouTube for Business and decided to fund us. And, and that was that. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, it's interesting trajectory. And then um, to the point on the drive we made from San Francisco to Waterloo, after YC, we successfully raised the $1.65 million seed round, and I'm sure there'll be questions on how that happened. But we then drove back to Waterloo from Silicon Valley. The first drive we made was thinking about the business. The second drive we made back was we'd executed, we've gone through YC, we have over a million and a half dollars in the bank, which is a lot of zeros for yeah. you know, two guys that have never seen that kind of money in their lives talking about the type of company we want to build and, and where it's going to go from there. So I've got a soft spot in my heart for that drive. And, and I'm sure when the light at the end of the tunnel comes, whether it's a, an IPO for us or the next massive milestone, Dev and I are going to do that drive again and, and just reflect <laughs> on everything we've learned along the way. So in terms of that initial concept that you made on that drive, how close is Vidyard today to the kind of company that you guys ideated there in the driver and passenger seat? So the, I think the reality is you, you got to keep your eyes open for product opportunities as you go. And, and your customers are your best product managers. They'll tell you what they want. And it's up to you to take that information and infer what they need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's been a few integrations and partnerships and, and small directional changes. But we still are, rightfully so, the YouTube for business, which is what PG called us. We are a B2B platform for, for managing your video content and tracking how people are viewing it and tracking that data back to ROI. We're much Sounds like better you might have now. delivered that uh, descriptor once or twice before. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It, it changes every time. But we still do that. And just the way we do it has, has become essentially more mature. What was, this, what was the follow-on to that question? There was something else there. I was just curious, you know, how it's evolved from the initial concept. Oh, right, right. As you've gone along, I hear a lot of YC founders talk about the fact that the idea that they pitched originally is so very far from the company that they're running today. Uh, and a lot of that's due to the mentorship that they get yeah. along the way, the pitch coaching that they get along the way. People that are, you know, involved in several industries as opposed to maybe just one or yep. a couple. Now, I would say the only thing that's really changed is, is our approach in, in the go-to-market strategy. Yeah. Like we now sell to bigger companies than we had ever previously imagined at a much higher price point than we had previously imagined. But really, it's been, a, it's been an evolution, not a, not a revolution in, the, in terms of the business. Yeah. Um, there was no massive pivot. We've, we've pretty much stayed the course. And again, I, I think a large part of that is because the need for what we built was defined by customers that we were creating videos for. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that need existed and that market, AKA animated explainer videos and companies that produce that content has exploded. And yeah. so the market's only gotten bigger and therefore the need for what we do has gotten stronger. Well, it's good to be well positioned when, uh, when the iron is hot and the lightning strikes. Yep, you uh, got it, man. And, and I mean, I think you know, the market's still growing. The cumulative annual growth rate is, is off the hook and uh, you know, we've got a long ways to go. Well, talk to me a little bit about raising capital. You, you, know, you mentioned you raised $1.65 million, and I'm particularly curious uh, how you raise as much money as you have with Vidyard and doing that not in the valley. You know, obviously, having that, that Y Combinator brand behind you has probably helped smooth things along the process, and having yep. the, the network of Y Combinator is, is great. But 
in general, you're usually the pitch guy. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you can probably tell. When we were coming out of undergrad and, and about to go to YC, we had essentially developed a plan, which had two paths on it. This was before we got the YC interview. So we, we didn't actually tell anybody we got the YC interview. We, we kept it pretty quiet. And that's important because it's a, it's a negative signal if YC does not fund you. Yeah. A lot of companies use it as, oh my gosh, YC is giving us an interview. You should invest in us. And investors are just going to wait because there's no actual rush, right? So we had a path lined up with uh, an angel investor who came out of the BlackBerry ecosystem who's now on our board. His name is Dennis Cavalman. And a local... Uh, fund, Canadian-specific fund called IAF, which was interested in us, but has a, a four-month deal decision process. Okay. But the terms are good. And then a program called FedDev that did matching on investments that just kind of followed on in certain terms. And so we had structured off of a $200,000 seed investment from an angel and then a $500,000 investment from this program called IAF, about a $1.2 or $1.3 million seed round. And we had lined up, you know, it's something that we had been pitching and there's definitely funding resources available in economies outside of Silicon Valley, but they're different and you have to understand how they work and you can use debt financing. I mean, VC is not the only way to fund a business. It just so happens to be the popular and the, you know, democratized way of, of funding a business. And so when we secretly had these two paths and when Dennis Cavalman, our first angel, was interested in investing, I told him about those two paths. But the reality is both paths looked great. YC was a, a black box, but it had produced amazing businesses. And we had no idea what the outcome of YC was going to be. Or this other more traditional Canadian path, which was, you know, a million, two, million, three in funding, um, that would give us the, the, the same opportunity to grow the business, just not with the experience of Silicon Valley. So we were pretty well set up when we got into YC we essentially said no to Dennis, no to IAF, no to FedDev, because YC had given us $20,000. <laughs> so we traded a $20,000 investment from YC for you know, pretty much a guaranteed $1.2 million that we had spent probably six months putting together. Did you have any hesitation with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, first to admit, I think the belief was if we could get Canada, which is traditionally a, a slower market from a VC and investment perspective, to move and be interested in our business, we could probably do the same thing in the Valley. And we'd heard such great things, and, and obviously YC has, has, a, has a great um, reputation. So we decided to go the YC route, and then once we got into the program, Dennis Cavalman, you know, decided that he wanted to invest, and so he invested at a, probably a very incremental price difference to when we were not in YC yeah. and not in Silicon Valley. Sure. But then what we were able to do is, is during the program, get interest from SV Angel, Yep. There was a start fund program back then. Prior to Demo Day, they decided they wanted to invest more cash into the company. And were you still based um, in Canada at this point? Yep. Yeah, we're a Canadian company, but during YC, we, were, we moved here. Sure. So I lived here for effectively four months during Y Combinator. Yep. And then we also had uh, one of the YC partners, Paul Bukite, decide to invest. And so all in, when we stood up on stage at Demo Day, which we looked at as the most important day of our lives, we had about $550,000 raised in the bank, which took away a lot of the edges to investing in, in a startup company because there's already validation. The validation comes from people that you know, have good experience and have picked winners before. And so you know, despite that, to raise the other million dollars beyond that, I had to essentially, I think it took about 115 meetings in a three-week period and ended up closing money from eight additional angels. Oh, that's great. Um, and so the, you know, the conversion rate isn't great. And I always hear startups talk about the, the five people they pitched and none of them are interested in investing. <laughs> right. But based on my math, 
you got to pitch at least another five more before you're going to get a single yes. And that's just the law of math. And, you know, I think Silicon Valley plays an important part in how all companies raise money because it's here. It's been taught here. People know how to invest. They understand safes. They understand convertible notes. Whereas more backwards or slower moving economies don't necessarily get that. Yeah. So I, I recommend constantly and run a small fund to this point. Anybody who's looking at raising money should spend at least a couple weeks in that, in that phase in Silicon Valley, just building a network, taking meetings and, and exposing themselves to what we were exposed to. I heard you mention the word validation. And are, are there other yeah. forms of validation that you use uh, in your pitch, whether, whether you're pitching your company to investors or you're pitching it to a new hire or you're pitching it to uh, a new customer, I'm, I'm guessing that you, you kind of have your go-to validation points for each of those audiences. Yeah. What, what have you found to work the best? Yeah, so the question was about uh, validation. I mean, I think in a startup, the, the most important validation that you can have is in, is in revenue. It's customers, and revenue comes in two things. It comes in money, but also comes in time. So if you're a consumer product, people spend a lot of time with your platform or your product. They're clearly investing in it. They're investing with their money, or their time rather. Customers, you know, buying the product, having good feedback, opening up their testimonials to investors, all that stuff is like the easy, easy validation. And, and the interesting thing is I see a lot of companies and founders that, that try to raise without that. Yeah. And there's this... There's Why do you this, think people do that? Uh, because raising money looks like success and feels like success. And you know, the line I always use there is, the chef doesn't celebrate buying the ingredients. <laughs> um, it's generally when the meal is produced. And, and raising money is, is literally just, just assembling the ingredients. It has nothing to do with what you do after it. And I think raising money, you know, a couple million dollars on a, a TechCrunch announcement still holds cachet amongst your peers and naysayers and stuff. And so you, know, you often hear, I've got a great idea. All I need is an investor and a, and a technical founder. And the value of, of that in particular is absolutely zero because it's literally just an idea. Yeah. And the closer you can get to validation through revenue via customer's time or money, the, the easier it is going to be to raise. Because you know, an investor, think about yourself, they don't have a, a glass orb. They can't see the commitment you have to this idea inside of your head outside of how your actions essentially are realized through revenue and time spent with your product. And so, I mean, that's the validation that we had. And, and again, we had bootstrapped via services and producing videos to get to a point where we had customers could afford to build technology, then could sell that technology to them on a subscription model to validate the business had legs. And that was all before we even applied to YC. Yeah. So it's like a full year, year and a half of work before then, just to get the idea off the ground, just to learn, do the research, et cetera. And we look at you know, the founding and the launch of our business as you know, when we left YC. And it's four years from then, but we've actually been kind of doing this and thinking about this now for five and a half, almost six years. Yeah. You had, so, you had a considerable foundation or, or platform yeah. when you were actually pitching at Demo Day, even beyond the 550000 you had committed. Yeah, and again, it comes from customers. Like, we were able to put Coca-Cola as a logo on our deck during YC. And, you know, Coca-Cola's a big company. And a startup who can sell a technology to Coke in a period of three to, three to four months is clearly doing some pretty, pretty effective hustling. And it's easy to plot the trajectory of that business um, just from that short period of time and that one logo. Yeah. Well, I... I think it's interesting the amount of depth underneath what is visible to everyone, whether they're just looking at Crunchbase or just looking at the TechCrunch article yep. or they're looking at your explainer video uh, for the company. Uh, th there's a lot of other things going on and a lot of groundwork that's been laid 
to make that company have that appearance on the outside. And so one of the things that uh, I wanted to make sure we talked about it, and, and I appreciate you taking the time here. I saw an email that you shared, and it was from Paul Graham. And it said the negotiation starts yeah. at no. Yep. Can you talk to me and, and maybe tell me why he sent that email to you and the, the scenario mm. and maybe even the outcome of the action you took based on that email? So again, uh, during YC, you know, we knew we had a 90-day window to, to move the needle from both a technology development perspective but also a customer development perspective. And so when we went into the program, it was very clear. I became the guy who talked to customers, talked to investors, did all the external communications, figured out you know, product roadmap requirements, whereas my co-founder and the team that we had hired and put together focused more or less on, on developing the technology. And so I went to Paul Graham and essentially went through the list of YC companies and gave them all the, hey, we're a YC company. Um, we noticed you have video on your website. We've got a technology that can solve a problem for you. Are you interested in having a conversation? And, and one such company was a large portfolio company for YC, probably the largest now by valuation. Yeah. You probably can figure that out. And went through a, a, a big dance with them, went through the founder, introduced me to the individual that was responsible for the project with that related to video, met with her. They kind of strung me along, you know, I, and I think there's a bit of a, oh, this guy's a founder, he's doing cool things, it's an opportunity to have him build the technology you need. And then ultimately said, oh, by the way, we've decided to work with another vendor on this project. And I forwarded that thread to PG, which was after weeks and weeks of back and forth and, you know, feeling like we had something going on. And his response was that simple line in quotations, and it's a Joe Cross quote, um, the negotiation begins at no. And I took that with fervor, and, and I remember it was, uh, I found out that the individual I'd been working with, it was her birthday, and bought some cupcakes, and went to the offices of this company, and, and worked my way in to the point where they gave us a small aspect of that contract to prove out our model. And you know that quote is now printed out and written above every single one of our, our sales reps boards because we, we firmly believe that we provide a valuable offering to the companies that we sell to. Um, the reality is, you know, you're going to get no's, you're going to get objections. Um, you and I probably provide them all the time, but we've been swayed one way or another. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, just thinking through that, it's something I've used to raise money. It's something that we use in our Series B. Um, that story is pretty public. Again, we got a no from BVP before they said a yes. To me, a no is merely a, a roadblock of some variety, and yeah. there's always a way around that path. And if you quit every time you heard no, you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be productive. And guaranteed, I have heard probably orders of magnitude more no's in the <laughs> development of, of this company than I have heard yeses. But back to the concept of pitching 110 investors before closing 10, that's a lot of no's. It's, you know, 90% of those conversations are no's, but it's important to still look for the yeses and, and make sure you have enough volume of interactions to verify that what you're doing doesn't work before you hang up the hat. Sure, sure. I definitely see um, a good number of founders who keep themselves pumped up and excited and they're hearing all no's. Yeah, oh yeah. And the no's stay no's. And uh, it's, it's tough to be the person that has to deliver, hey, maybe, maybe the product's not right. Maybe the yep. message isn't right. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe we needed to try something differently. But, uh, but I hate that, to use the word, but iterate. Yeah, that level of optimism that the founder has is, is what makes them successful because it, it can be very dark. And, and I do think there needs to be a dose of, of reality there. And, and maybe somebody else in the team needs to deliver that. Yeah. But for that individual who is ever enthusiastic about the offering and really, truly believes it solves a, a big problem, and that no is merely a, a stumbling block in the ecosystem of a deal, that's a great way to be. And I'll never, ever, ever dislike someone or discount them for that. 
Do, do you think that that level of enthusiasm and passion for the product or for the company is something that can be taught or learned? You know, I think, I think humans can convince themselves to be in love with anything, yeah. whether that be a partner or a significant other, you know, Stockholm effect, whether it be a captor or a company in a technology. And I think there's, there's many reasons why I love Vidyard, and it's from the product and the problem we solve all the way down to the, the business itself. And a lot of people probably look at that and think, well, I don't know how he can really be so obsessed with it, but it's something you learn over time. So I, I don't know if it can be taught, but I think it's something that can develop mm -hmm. um, with enough time, you know, with a particular problem. And I do want to say, though, that I, I do think that's necessary when it comes to building a company, that crazy passion, because yeah. that's what gets you through the, the long, lonely nights. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that that's the majority of what a good pitch is? Is passion? No, I, I think it's, you know, a combination of passion is certainly something that, as a seed investor now, I look for. Because passion indicates that there's like a warrior instinct there, that when times are tough, that person's going to succeed despite the situation at hand. But there's also that necessity of validation. And if you combine passion and validation in a pitch, there's really no reason why an investor shouldn't give you money, especially at the early, early stage, because they don't care. The company doesn't need to have a $200 million revenue opportunity. It needs to have a $2 million revenue opportunity for them to get a return. And I firmly believe that anything, anybody can sell anything to anyone to the amount of $2 million in revenue. It's just how does it scale beyond that? So again, if you can have those two things in spades, it becomes much easier to invest. And there's a lot of passionate entrepreneurs without validation out there. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Two very important parts of the equation. Yep. Well, I want to wrap up the interview, but I want to also make sure that I ask you and lean on your expertise in video, yep. particularly because there's been a huge explosion in, in using video to actually deliver the pitch, whether that's in sales or an explainer video to attract the right talent to your team, but even in pitching to investors to invest in the company as yep. a first experience, as you know, more SaaS platforms are out there, as, as proposal software, people are putting their offering or their PPM in electronic version and including video yep. with that. Have you seen video used effectively? And, and if so... In pitching investors. In pitching investors. And, and if so, what would you say to an entrepreneur to include in that video? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think video is, is an effective way of communicating a value proposition to, to customers at scale. Okay. And I think the, the types of volumes you need to produce for, for customers is, is crazy large compared to investors. You know, we, we sent out a nurture campaign this morning, specifically for Dreamforce, and there was more people on that list than there likely are VCs in the entire world, right? And that's yeah. where scalable mediums like video and video analytics really help. With respect to investors, if you are pitching investors, if you're actively sending them emails and content, you are likely not going to get funded. And it's because investors get so many inbound introductions from their network, yeah. let alone picking up the ones that come in cold off the street. And the cold pitches, and you know, this might sound crazy and, and maybe slightly may I use the word douchey, but the, the cold pitches are indicative that that person does not know how to leverage their network and be resourceful enough to get an introduction from somebody that that investor knows. Yeah. And that resourcefulness is another key part of the ingredient, you know, passion, validation, and resourcefulness. Maybe yeah. we'll keep adding ones to it. 
So I would say, you know, I don't think that's douchey at all. I, yeah. I think that that's something that people need to hear. Yeah, and, and so so yeah, send a video. I mean, make sure you track if they actually watch that asset because it's a great way to say, hey, I noticed you haven't watched the video yet, yeah. or hey, you know, you watched that video. Why aren't we talking? Right. But again, I, I think that's something that you do to validate their interest a little bit later on. So maybe after a first meeting, send them a video asset and see if they actually watch that content. Yeah. Take it down a little a little further down the funnel. But again, don't cold pitch investors if you can. Every investor you meet, though, ask for introductions to other investors because. Everybody can probably within their network get at least an introduction to one and at least one meeting. And if you walk away from that one meeting with two confirmed intros, mm -hmm. then you can go to those two new, two new meetings and ask for four confirmed intros. And that's how your network builds. That's the spider of, of seed investing and, and angel investing. So definitely be resourceful as you can and don't cold pitch if you can, if you can avoid it. Well, it's, it's been really cool to hear a couple anecdotes of your resourcefulness uh, along the growth story of Vidyard, uh, starting on your road trips <laughs> to and from uh, San Francisco and, and Canada. Yep. I hope that you will um, share the story of your next road trip whenever that happens. Uh, hopefully we can jump back on the mic, maybe with some people in the audience and talk about that story when that day comes. But if people want to find out more about you and about Vidyard, where do you want them to go? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Google's a great start. I've heard of that. Um, there's, heard of uh, there's a lot of great information about the company, the, the story of our Series B. I've always been very pro-communicate how things have happened in our business yeah. because A, it makes great press and great press is, is great for pickup and distribution, but B, it also tells a story that I think people need to hear, gloves off, you know, in full transparency. So I would say just do some Googling. Want to find out more about the company, check out our website, vidyard.com. And um, if you're interested in using the platform, you know, register for a demo and, and someone will contact you and walk you through it shortly. Definitely. I hope people will do that. Cool. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. That's it for our interview with Michael Litt, but it does not have to be the end of the conversation. You can reach out to Michael on Twitter, and that's at Michael Litt. That's at Michael L-I-T-T. -T. Give him a follow. Let him know what you learned on Powder Keg. We'll see you next time.